Good morning and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds this morning. Just before we get started, I want to call attention to the fact that I am delighted, we are all delighted, that our new CEO and President, Joanne Conroy, is here with us today. So thank you for attending. Thank you. This is a very important and special Grand Rounds, and I love the format. We're going to get started in just a moment. Dr. Janet Lowe is here from Harvard Medical School and the Mass General Hospital. She'll be introduced to us by Richard Comey, who is our endocrinology chief of that section and a professor of medicine in our department. Um, Dr. Lowe uh, had a potential financial interest disclosed with Shire, but it was looked at by our vice chair for education. There are no conflicts of interest. Rich, would you tell us about Dr. Lowe? By the way, to get credit for today, you need to text 87F6 to the place that you usually do that, 87F6, and you will get your CME credits. Thank you. Well, good morning to everyone. It's really nice to see such a, uh, such a good turnout so early. I'm going to be very brief because Janet has quite an interesting presentation for all of us. But uh, I just met Janet for the first time yesterday, and she came really to remind me that the triple threat is still alive and well. And uh, she really is the triple threat. So she uh, graduated from Columbia Medical School in 2000 and got, did her internship and residency at Columbia Presbyterian, then went to the Mass General and did her fellowship in endocrinology there, finishing in 2007. And she's an assistant professor of medicine uh, at Harvard Medical School and at the Mass General. She has a lot of roles at the Mass General. She's part of their neuroendocrine division. Uh, but she does a lot of different interesting research topics. She's been very interested in the metabolic uh, changes of HIV, and that's what she's going to talk about uh, with us today. She also has a grant to study a tyrosine kinase inhibitor in prolactinomas, and she's been very interested in a subject probably near and dear to Rich Rothstein's heart of uh, GI epithelium and its relationship to metabolic issues. So she spans quite a number of, uh, of areas. Not only that, but she seems to know everybody here at DHMC. So it's really, uh, she's interacted with almost all of our clinical departments. Uh, I will mention, though, that she won in 2017, that this year, the Gil Daniels Teaching Award in the endocrine section there. So not only does she do the research, see patients, but she also is a really fine teacher, and she runs their house staff. Uh, they're actually their fellowship journal club and their fellowship conference. So she sort of does a lot of things. It's amazing how energetic she is, and we had a wonderful dinner with her last night, so I think we're in for a real treat this morning. So, Jenna, why don't you come up? Good morning. Thanks so much for the kind introduction, Rich. It's a tremendous honor for me to be here. Can you all hear me okay? Should I stand right in front of the microphone further away? <laughs> okay. Um, so I am just so honored to be here. I've you know, gotten to interact with Dr. Andrews, Dr. Ornstein, and um, Dr. Brandt over the last, you know, um, or Dr. Brandt more recently, but, you know, Dr. Andrews really for, um, you know, the last nine years um, because of our patient and who's here today. And, you know, the, the best part of this presentation is actually going to be, you know, Kevin sharing his story and also um, remarks from, um, you know, uh, Dr. Andrews, Dr. Brandt, and hopefully Dr. Ornstein too. So, you know, that, um, you know, I'm really excited about that part, but I, you know, um, yeah, just wanted to use, you know, Kevin's story, if you don't mind, Kevin, you know, as um, a, 
you know, an example of why metabolic complications in HIV is something we need to care about um, for our patients. Um, here's my disclosure. So here's an outline of what we'll talk about today. First, I'll present Kevin's case, and then Kevin's going to share with us his experience, and then we'll talk about glucose homeostasis in patients living with HIV, lipodystrophy associated with HIV, cardiovascular disease risk and dyslipidemia, and then lastly, treatment strategies. And then I'm going to turn it over to Kevin's providers who you know have a lot to say about him. So I'm going to start um, by telling you a little bit about Kevin. He's a 58-year-old man, um, has an MBA. He's a healthcare system project specialist and consultant. And he's actually a, a beloved member of the Dartmouth-Hitchcock um, medical community here, um, uh, well known to many of you. So um, Kevin was born with hemophilia A, uh, has factor eight deficiency, and has been followed by Dr. Ornstein um, for his hemophilia. Hemophilia. His HIV disease was diagnosed in 1985, and his risk factor uh, was factor transfusions. And uh, Dr. Andrews follows him for his HIV disease. And um, uh, you know, from factor transfusions, Kevin also acquired Hep C. And fortunately, we have great treatment for Hep C, and so he's been cured of that and has undetectable Hep C virus. Um, uh, but as a complication from interferon treatment in the past for Hep C, he did develop hypothyroidism and is on thyroid hormone replacement. Um, he has hypertension, very mild diabetes that's currently diet controlled, um, and um, and then we'll, I'll tell you more about his um, dyslipidemia in a little bit. And then you know there's um, other problems that you know Kevin has been having to live with and you know really uh, bravely you know dealing with all of these other issues. So um, more recently um, in Kevin's case, and actually I'm going to show you first um, his current meds, um, but um, sorry for that. I'm going to actually try to go chronologically. It might make a little more sense. So um, uh, Dr. Andrews has started him on antiretroviral therapy in 1986, and shown here are his prior antiretroviral meds. And um, importantly, you know, he started out with the um, nucleoside reverse trans transcriptase inhibitors, including D4T, which is known to have uh, mitochondrial toxicity. Um, and then he was started on protease inhibitors um, in the 90s, and um, those are some of his PI as, uh, that he has been he had been on in the past. And then um, in uh, 2016, um, Dr. Andrews switched into a, you know, once-a-day regimen and a more modern regimen that is, you know, um, uh, you know, that made a lot of sense. Um, you know, it's a combination um, integrase inhibitor um, uh, with, you know, entracitabine and tenofovir alafenamide. Um, but, you know, a few months after that, Kevin suddenly developed nephrotic range proteinuria, and that's when Dr. Brandt saw him. And um, Dr. Brandt's going to share with us, you know, um, some details about his renal workup. Uh, which will be very helpful for um, for us all to hear. And then uh, around that time, he also had an episode of elevated lactic acid, muscle cramping. Kevin was feeling very tired at the time. And um, then um, you know, despite that, he kept biking. 
like <laughs> you know, 20 miles a day or something. Um, and then because of the um, lactic acidosis and all of his symptoms, um, Dr. Andrews did have to discontinue his Genvoya, um, metformin, and Torvastatin. And Dr. Shaw, Dr. Jasmine Shaw is actually Kevin's primary care doctor, and so she was also involved in the decision-making process here too. More recently, Kevin's also developed, um, uh, you know, eosinophilic asthma. That's followed by Dr. Atkins here. And then um, hypercalcemia has become more of a prominent problem um, just in the last year. It looks like it's probably PTH-mediated. Um, Dr. Sarovinsky had actually called me very, very appropriately uh, because I was ordering too many labs, and um, some of them, you know, I could have been more parsimonious about. So, Kevin, you'll be glad to hear that because he was really uh, thorough and, and careful to make sure that all t lab tests were warranted and the correct ones were done, um, and also stage two CKD. So now, um, Dr. Mar uh, Dr. Andrews has him on dolutegravir, ropivirine, and emtricitabine. And, um, you know, uh, Mary Margaret's going to share with us at the end, too, about some of the decision processes behind choice of antiretrovirals. Um, Kevin's on Tessa Merlin, which I'll be telling you more about and why he's on that. And um, he's on uh, thyroid hormone replacement, several um, antihypertensive agents, um, and more have been added on since the nephrotic um, syndrome. And then he's on um, Lavaza, which is, you know, basically fish oil, prescription fish oil, uh, that, to help control his hypertriglyceridemia. And here's a list of his other meds. I'll just mention, importantly, he had been on diclofenac for many, many years for hemophilic arthropathy, arthropathy but it was stopped um, very recently because of uh, his kidney, kidney function. Um, in terms of family history, Kevin's father had type 2 diabetes and had an MI um, and unfortunately died at um, age 68. Kevin's mom is a carrier of hemophilia. Um, and social history, uh, Kevin's married, has two children. He um, does, you know, does not smoke, rarely drinks, and he enjoys playing golf, although with his shoulder pain that has you know, um, not been uh, very possible. But um, he still gets to enjoy one of his favorite pastimes, which is walking along the beach with his wife. Um, and uh, he eats actually an extremely healthy diet, much healthier than mine, <laughs> and um, exercises, you know, um, uh, by cycling as much as he can. But, you know, with a lot of the joint um, issues and pain, um, it, exercising has been challenging. And shown here is his physical exam. Blood pressure now is under, you know, fairly good control. And um, his BMI is 29.9. Um, he's, you know, um, you know, when you when you see him, he's very, always very cheerful, very well appearing. Um, although he does have to deal with quite a lot of pain um, from his, you know, uh, back issues and, and joint issues. Um, and he does have, you know, um, and you'll you'll get to meet Kevin. So, um, you know, um, he he does have some moderate features of lipodystrophy with fat loss in the cheeks and the bitemporal regions, and then also um, some excess fat in the anterior neck, anterior neck region and dorsal cervical fat areas. And actually, Tessa has significantly improved um, uh, the fat excess in those regions. And then there's also abdominal fat accumulation and some lipoatrophy of his extremities. 
um, is waist circumference. Um, last measured was 110 centimeters with a hip circumference of 102 centimeters. So the increased waist to hip ratio um, is, you know, n not uncommon um, in patients with lipodystrophy. And he does have some trace edema on his feet that has been continuing to improve. Uh, shown here is his uh, most uh, recent laboratory data, although Dr. Stravinsky actually has, you know, newer data right off the press from blood drawn um, just two days ago. But um, CD4 counts 385, undetectable viral load, um, thanks to Mary Margaret. And um, his estimated GFR is 50. Uh, shown here are his lipids. Um, I grilled the endocrine fellows yesterday, so I won't grill them today. Um, but, you know, he has um, a low HDL, um, most likely from, you know, the viral infection and also some of his med medications. Um, LDL uh, is 156, triglycerides 224. And this is off of the statin because um, Kevin had to stop it when he um, had the acute episode of muscle aches. Um, occasionally nowadays has random glucoses, or actually the, these random glucoses above 200s only occurred when he was hospitalized after surgeries. Most of the time, um, his sugars are in the hundreds range. Fasting has been in the 120s range, and this is even off of metformin. When I first met Kevin in 2008, um, I did an oral glucose tolerance test, and his fasting glucose was 117 at the time. Two-hour glucose at the time was 195. Um, and this puts him in the category of having impaired fasting glucose and impaired glucose tolerance. So he had prediabetes. Um, and, uh, and then his glucose is, you know, um, did rise occasionally during, you know, stressful conditions um, above 200s. And um, so, you know, because of that, we did put him on um, metformin, and um, that did help to control his sugars. And um, his most recent hemoglobin A1C is 6.9%, and that's even off of um, metformin. Um, so now I'd like to introduce Kevin to you all. It's really a, a special, you know, uh, privilege to have taken care of Kevin over the last nine years. And, um, you know, I'm you know, so delighted I can introduce him to all of you. Actually, many of you already know him. So, um, you know, yeah, it's just, you know, it's a uh, wonderful privilege for us to be able to he hear Kevin share his story with us. So I'm going to pass on the microphone here. I usually don't need a microphone. Oh, okay. No, no, that's fine. I know it's being recorded. How's that? Is that okay? Good. So I'm not going to talk about all the sciencey stuff. Um, just to give you a little bit of, of sort of the, the living with all this stuff history. Um, so I was di diagnosed, as Dr. Lowe said, with uh, HIV in 1985. I was married with two kids in diapers and living a thousand miles away from any family. So back then, you really thought you were going to die from AIDS. So of course, we moved back to New Hampshire where our family was. Um, and I actually enrolled in, I think, one of the original trials. It was uh, AZT or placebo. And fortunately, I found out after the fact that I was randomized into the AZT arm. Um, but that then sort of the therapies uh, evolved uh, from, from there. That study actually was uh, so effective that they halted it before the end of the trial and put everyone on AZT. And you'll recall, those of you that are as old as me will recall, the FDA was under a lot of pressure, particularly from the gay community, to bring more drugs to market more rapidly than their normal uh, approval cycle. So, um, 
you know, your initial focus is on survival. You just think about, all right, how long do I have to live? What are some of the things that I want to do in my life? And then as the therapies evolved over time, you realize that, oh, my God, I'm going to actually survive with HIV. And you start thinking about um, other considerations. Um, you know, but originally your mood swings would go up and down based on your CD4 count and your T-cell ratio. You know, you had a good, good lab result and you felt pretty good about things and you had a bad one and you're sort of down in the dumps. And then you start to realize that um, there's a lot of other considerations that you need to think about if you're not going to die from AIDS, uh, uh, like sort of I thought I would when I was first diagnosed. So one of the other things that I had was hepatitis C. Of course, back then they called it non-A, non-B. And it was largely just ignored because no one's going to live long enough to die of liver disease if you've got uh, AIDS. And then as you realize that HIV was going to be controlled, hep C became more of a consideration. Uh, went through the interferon treatment, had a sustained viral, had a viral response, but it wasn't sustained. Uh, and then the Sovaldi actually ended up eradicating that, uh, that virus. Um, from an HIV management standpoint, I've been really lucky. I've responded to every single regimen I've been on. The issue for me has not been what would suppress the virus. The issue for me is what are the side effect manifestations of the meds and how limiting was that in my, in my desire to try to lead a normal life. Uh, and so we had some regimens that were effective at managing the viral burden, but were not satisfactory to me in terms of the side effects. And so part of the working particularly with infectious disease over the years, was how do you find the right regimen that's a decent balance of uh, viral control and reasonable side effects? And, of course, when you have, as a clinician, when you have a drug that's showing no virus, it's tempting to just want to stick with that and not change it. But I would usually be fairly aggressive with my clinicians about wanting to alter some of the, some of the regimens. So... Um, uh, one of the things that I always wanted to try to do growing up with hemophilia was to try to lead as normal a life as possible. Part of understanding the side effects and how to manage them, I think, were uh, important to me. So um, one of the things I'm balancing even right now today is functionality versus longevity. So the issue with diclofenac, I get just enough relief. And I don't believe in taking narcotics, so I don't take any meds for pain. I get just enough relief from the diclofenac that it's a little easier for me to ambulate and walk. And, you know, now, you know, the kidney fo focus is, geez, diclofenac's pretty bad for your kidney. Can you come off it? And so right now I'm in this sort of, for me, experimental period where how functional am I able to be off the diclofenac with just Tylenol versus the damage that being on diclofenac causes. And so, um, you know, it's a difference of do I feel like going for a walk in the park with my wife versus I'm just going to sit in a chair and watch the Red Sox game tonight. And from a lifestyle standpoint and from a, a longevity standpoint, those are some of the balances that I'm trying to sort through um, in my, my sort of my end, or end stage of life. The lipodystrophy was a big issue for me. I had a pretty big fat pad. I called it the humpback. And I also had pretty big jowls. My neck size went from... 15 and a half to 18. And so um, I'm, I'm a consultant as well as a part-time employee at Darwin Hitchcock. Well, in consulting, you need to make a pretty good first impression. And showing up looking a little bit like, you know, the hunchback of Notre Dame crossed with the job of the hot was not really a great first impression to make on new clients. And it was important to me cosmetically to do something. So thankfully, Dr. Andrews uh, had sent me to Dr. Lowe, who introduced me to the the egrifta, which are the, the belly shots of the growth hormone, and it's had a big impact on my neck size and my, my humpback, not too much of an impact on the belly fat. One of the other 
um, ironies of the lipodystrophy is it sort of strips the fat away from your extremities. And I was a golfer until my back became so bad that I couldn't golf. And, you know, in the summertime, here's a white Irish kid with, with uh, shorts on, and people would say, hey, don't move the out-of-bounds stakes. Go put those back when they would look at my legs because there were these <laughs> skinny white things. So, um, uh, so I, I would, wouldn't do justice to my role as an administrator if I didn't make a few comments about care team. So one of the things I think as a person growing up with a lot of specialized illnesses, you tend to really focus in on your specialist because that's the person who's, who's helping you with the thing that you care about most. So my hematologist with hemophilia or my infectious disease doctor when I had HIV or a cancer patient might worry more about the oncologist and you tend to ignore your primary care doctor. I actually never had a primary care doctor until I was close to 50. And my specialist said, you really need to have a PCP. And I'm like, ah, you're all internists. Why do I need a PCP? And I will tell you that as a patient, it's made a real big difference to have Dr. Shaw as a PCP. She has a perspective about things that now that I'm really living with chronic illness and not a life-threatening illness, has been very valuable to me as a patient. And I was someone who sort of tried to push off having a PCP. So that's been, I think, a very positive. The second comment I would make is the role of a consultant. Sometimes we at Dartmouth, as consultants to other communities, get charged with taking over care or being disrespectful of others involved in care. I think that's usually a false charge, but it is out there. Dr. Lowe, I think, exemplifies the role of a consultant, extremely respectful of the people on my care team. She would have opinions, sometimes strong ones, about what I should do for medications, but it was always check with Dr. Shire PCP, check with Dr. Andrews, make sure this is okay with Dr. Ornstein. And I think that's a terrific way. And, and for me, at the bedside, the, you know, in the clinical encounter, I was seeing how respectful she was of my care team. And I think that is the right way to do an effective consult. And then lastly, having been around here when we went through the epic conversion and knowing how horrible it was for everyone, <laughs> I will tell you, as someone who gets part of his care at Dartmouth-Hitchcock and part of his care at Mass General, the epic care everywhere really works. In my last encounter with Dr. Lowe, and I got a second opinion with nephrology uh, at Mass General, and they're logging on, they're looking at all my results. Before Dr. Lowe can tell you, I used to have to go on the MightyH portal and print off everything I thought she might want to have for that encounter. How wonderful is it that she could actually use care everywhere and have an up-to-date record of my care? So I, I have to make that little shout out for all of you who suffered through the conversion. It really works from a patient perspective who's got a lot of complex illness. So thank you very much. so much for sharing, Kevin. Um, it's, yeah, really you know, uh, uh, a, a treasure to hear about your experience and, you know, for our students and uh, residents and um, fellows to, to learn, you know, um, you know what, what it feels like to be a patient and you understand the healthcare system so well and, you know, that, that perspective is very, is very, very valuable. So 
I'm going to talk now about um, you know, metabolic complications of HIV and why we should care. Um, so nowadays, there's over 35 million adults and children living with HIV worldwide. And antiretroviral therapy, as you heard from Kevin, greatly improved the survival of HIV patients. However, the life expectancy of patients living with HIV is still lower than the general population, although that is improving. And nowadays, you know, more than 50% of HIV patients are dying of non-AIDS-defining illnesses, including heart disease, malignancy, and liver disease. And management of the metabolic risk factors for cardiovascular disease will be very important to prevent cardiovascular disease um, uh, and prevent events and death. So first I'm going to talk about insulin resistance and diabetes in patients living with HIV. So having diabetes um, increases the risk of heart disease in the general population, but in patients living with HIV, um, that risk is even uh, more exaggerated uh, than having just, you know, diabetes alone. And um, just by way of review, here are some of the measures of glucose homeostasis that we currently use. And um, diabetes is defined by fasting glucose greater or equal to 126 or two hour glu- or glucose tolerance glucose greater than 200. And hemoglobin A1C is now being used as a diagnostic criterion for diabetes too. So, you know, you don't always have to get a fasting um, uh, blood sugar or do a, a two hour glucose uh, tolerance test. Um, but I do want to share with you a caveat um, for using hemoglobin A1C in um, the uh, uh, HIV patient population, and that is several studies have now shown that hemoglobin A1C um, may be inaccurate and tends to underestimate serum glucose in our patients living with HIV, so I would always corroborate it with um, uh, some, you know, finger sticks or, you know, serum glucoses um, uh, or plasma glucoses. Um, in terms of the prevalence of diabetes in patients living with HIV, rates do vary depending on the population that you're studying, depending on where you are, um, and the BMI of the cohort. Um, so it's somewhere between 3 to 14%. And for the most part, you know, when compared to controls in the similar populations, um, the, the prevalence of HIV tends to be higher um, in patients living with HIV. And having co-infection with hep C actually further increases the risk of diabetes. Co-infection with hep C um, also increases the rates of MIs as well. Um, Here are uh, current guidelines that we have uh, for, um, you know, uh, monitoring glucose. So the IDSA recommends um, checking fasting glucose and or hemoglobin A1C uh, prior to and within one to three months after starting ART. And then um, in patients who have uh, diabetes, um, uh, the recommendation is still to follow the same um, guidelines as the the ADA has for diabetics in general. In terms of treatment strategies, um, it's for now, it's still the same as in the general population. So diet and exercise, first and foremost, um, in patients with prediabetes, like when I first met Kevin, um, diet and exercise is 
extremely important. The diabetes prevention program showed us that diet and exercise is very effective in preventing the development of type 2 diabetes. It was better than placebo and even better than metformin. Um, if diet and exercise fa fail, then um, metformin would be our first-line agent. You can use it um, to treat prediabetes to prevent um, development of type 2 diabetes, but it is also our first-line agent for patients with type 2 diabetes. Um, and then um, other agents um, to be considered as add-ons if metformin alone fails. Um, there's some data suggesting that GLP-1 agonists um, may be uh, a helpful strategy for patients with um, uh, lipodystrophy as well. So metformin, um, it is our first-line agent for type 2 diabetes, has great effects on um, improving insulin resistance, which is um, the major problem that patients with uh, HIV-associated lipodystrophy face. They're extremely insulin resistant, so what you, you know, don't want to do is flog the pancreas to make ins more insulin by giving a sulfonylurea, um, but rather giving an insulin sensitizer can be very helpful because you're trying to address the problem that's at hand in lowering um, insulin resistance first. Um, however, um, uh, there's some data to suggest that there may be some drug-drug interactions uh, with um, uh, antiretrovirals. So there's a study done with dolutegravir where co-administration, while well-tolerated in um, patients, um, uh, metformin plasma levels were significantly increased um, when given concomitantly with dolutegravir and was dose-dependent, um, depending on dolutegravir dose. So that's something to watch out for. And then um, in patients who have impaired renal function, um, you know, that we do have to be careful, although the threshold for, you know, use of metformin, you know, in terms of estimated GFR has been getting lower and lower, and there's more data to suggest that, you know, it, it is safe um, even in patients with impaired renal function. And then, um, you know, given that Kevin did have an episode of elevated lactic acid, um, you know, that would be a contraindication uh, to metformin um, unless we find some other reason for why he developed the lactic acidosis before. Um, now I'm going to talk about fat redistribution in HIV. And, you know, what Kevin shared with you is a lot more poignant than, you know, what I can tell you. But um, as, as he mentioned, you know, the there's a disproportionate, you know, gain of adipose tissue, um, you know, in areas where, you know, one would not expect to have. So in the dorsal cervical region that you see here in panel C, um, and Kevin also had, um, you know, developed um, adipose tissue accumulation in the anterior neck, which, you know, um, uh, can be, you know, uh, for patients quite <coughs> distressing. Um, and, you know, abdominal lipohypertrophy is quite common, and even um, in patients that don't look like they have lipodystrophy, um, you know, they may actually have um, abdominal lip lipohypertrophy that's not clearly evident. Um, and, you know, when you look at the abdomen, it may look like just regular abdominal obesity, but if you were to scan and look inside, shown here are CT scans, you'll see there... Um, this is a, a patient with lipodystrophy, and this is a normal um, individual. There's actually a lot of loss of subcutaneous fat um, uh, and a gain of visceral adipose tissue. Um, this is the visceral adipose tissue compartment in the normal individual. So the 
the fat accumulation is all in the visceral adipose tissue compartment. And why is that important? Um, visceral adipose tissue compartment is thought to be more metabolically active, more pro-inflammatory, um, and, um, you know, is associated with lower um, adiponectin, which is a beneficial adipocytokine, and um, is more likely to cause increased um, uh, pro-inflammatory cytokine increases like increased TNF-alpha, um, IL-6, and um, may also have implications for causing increases in um, uh, liver fat as well as um, uh, epicardial fat, too. So what are some of the, you know, causes of lipodystrophy? Um, Mary Margaret and I were just talking about this. It's been, you know, now a couple decades, and we still don't know the exact cause of um, uh, you know, the, the mechanisms of lipodystrophy in patients living with <clears throat> HIV. There are some studies to give us hints. Um, so, for instance, a higher HIV viral load can predict uh, the development of, development of lipoatrophy. And um, building on this, there's some more recent data that have looked at different viral proteins and um, very convincing data showing that viral VPR um, can have an in impact on adipose tissue function. It can affect um, dicer um, in the adipose tissue. And then, um, you know, the use of thymidine analogs in the past, especially D4T and AZT, have been associated with lipoatrophy. And D4T um, is known to cause uh, mitochondrial toxicity, and that may be a mechanism of lipoatrophy. Um, then, you know, the FRAM study out of UCSF showed us that lipoatrophy and lipohypertrophy may occur independently of each other. They don't always go hand in hand. Um, use of antiretroviral therapy, you know, um, with the advent of um, highly active antiretroviral therapy when protease inhibitors, you know, came to the market, um, that's when we saw a lot more increase in uh, visceral adipose tissue. And so uh, PIs have been blamed for that. Um, but, you know, in talking with uh, Mary Margaret, you know, even on the newer generation of medications, the non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors, as well as the, even in the integrase with the integrase inhibitors, um, uh, Mary Margaret's also seeing patients developing lipohypertrophy, um, even with the more modern uh, regimens, which are thought to be neutral. Um, there are implications, um, not only in terms of appearance um, for the patient. Um, so, you know, for lipoatrophy, you know, having um, lower thigh circumference in the general population is associated with increased uh, cardiovascular disease and mortality and is associated with insulin resistance. Um, and very importantly, for patients, um, it really affects their quality of life and can affect um, antiretroviral therapy adherence. And in terms of lipohypertrophy, um, having excess visceral adipose tissue um, as well as um, upper trunk um, fat has been associated with insulin resistance. And in the general population, we know that having a more apple-shaped, you know, um, increased waist circumference, um, excessive abdominal adiposity are independent predictors of cardiovascular disease um, and, and mortality. And, um, you know, having increased fat is also you know, associated with metabolic syndrome um, abnormalities, including higher triglycerides um, and insulin resistance, and has been associated with coronary calcium in patients living with HIV. And lastly, very importantly, it significantly affects quality of life uh, for, for patients. 
So what can we do um, about, um, uh, you know, lipodystrophy when patients do develop this? Um, I'll have to say with lipoatrophy, we don't currently have any, you know, effective therapies, um, you know, stopping um, potential offending agents like um, uh, the thymidine analogs, you know, can probably halt the progression, but, you know, it's, the damage usually is permanent. Um, there's been studies looking at um, PPART gamma agonists because that can affect adipose tissue and increase sub-Q fat um, that suggests there could be some increase in limb fat on DEXA, but um, most of the studies show that most patients don't perceive a change, and anecdotally in, in, in clinic, you know, giving pyoglitazone in someone with diabetes or um, in, in paraglucose tolerance um, with lipoatrophy, you know, you might halt the progression, but most patients don't notice a big difference. And, you know, thiazolidinedinones are associated with so many different risks. Um, uh, pyoglitazone, the only one that we really, you know, might even still use, um, still has the you know, a worry about, you know, risk with uh, bladder cancer. So, so really no great strategies for um, lipoatrophy. But for um, visceral um, adiposity, um, you know, as Kevin shared with you, we do have um, currently an FDA-approved treatment for specifically for HIV-associated lipodystrophy. So that would be, um, you know, that's very exciting to, you know, to, to have that available. Um, so tesamorelin um, is currently FDA-approved to re reduce excess abdominal fat in uh, patients living with HIV and lipodystrophy. Um, it's a synthetic analog of um, a human growth hormone releasing factor. So um, growth hormone releasing factor, or GHRH, is made by the hypothalamus, and it stimulates your pituitary gland to make growth hormone. And the pituitary gland um, the growth hormone then stimulates your liver to make IGF-1. And um, IGF-1 is thought to carry out, um, you know, the main functions um, of, uh, growth, of the growth hormone access. Um, you know, in the past, we've actually given growth hormone um, to patients with HIV. And it, it's, it's very effective in lowering uh, um, abdominal fat, visceral fat, but it also reduced subcutaneous fat and it worsened glucose. So growth hormone uh, is not a, a great treatment for patients living with HIV. Um, you know, the, the beauty of um, using growth hormone releasing hormone is that it actually helps to induce secretion of growth hormone um, in a pulsatile manner. So maintaining the, uh, um, the body's own um, ability to produce growth hormone. But feedback is still intact. So if, you know, too much growth hormone is being produced or too much IGF-1 is being produced, it's going to feed back and, um, and prevent, you know, um, excess production. So, so then uh, that helps to prevent the um, uh, side effects of excess growth hormone. And so tesamorelin in the clinical trials um, have been shown to significantly reduce visceral adipose tissue. Um, so in six months, um, you know, there was a 15% reduction in visceral adipose tissue area. And um, that does continue if the medication is continued. Unfortunately, if tesamorelin is stopped, the visceral adipose tissue can re reaccumulate. So it's not a permanent solution. And um, it's very effective in lowering triglycerides. Um, and uh, very importantly, there was no reduction in sub-Q fat, um, which, um, you know, um, uh, is, is a, you know, a very important feature because, 
many patients are very bothered by the loss, loss of CQ fat, so we don't want to use an agent that can make that worse. Um, it significantly improved body image in patients, and, um, and then more recently, it's been shown to, to help with NAFOLD, so it can reduce liver fat as well. And, um, and very important, <coughs> the side effect profile is actually quite good. Um, so on the right is growth hormone-releasing hormone, tesamorelin. Um, you know, it's in, in terms of safety, it's really qu- quite good, um, you know, better than growth hormone. Um, and, you know, for all patients with lipodystrophy, lifestyle, um, you know, diet and exercise is still the most important um, uh, uh, you know, a first-line intervention. And even with patients on tesamorelin, I always counsel my patients to do whatever they can to, you know, maintain a healthy diet and exercise. Um, and so lifestyle is, you know, definitely first-line. Metformin can be effective in those with um, glucose um, abnormalities, and it can also reduce visceral adiposity, but not as effective as growth hormone-releasing hormone in doing that. Um, moving on now to cardiovascular risk, I just want to mention very briefly about this uh, because there's a lot of emerging data about cardiovascular risk, and it's one of the reasons why we also care so much about the metabolic abnormalities um, that patients living with HIV have to deal with. So there have now been um, several large epidemiologic studies and also um, healthcare system um, uh, cohort studies that have shown that the risk of MI is somewhere between 1.5 to 2 times higher in patients living with HIV compared to uh, the general population. And even when you adjust for traditional risk factors like diabetes, hypertension, um, dyslipidemia, there still seems to be an excess risk associated um, with HIV infection that's not explained away by just traditional risk factors. So, but, you know, in terms of traditional risk factors, you know, those are the ones that we can modify. Um, And so I'm going to talk about, um, uh, you know, in addition to... Um, controlling glucose, you know, um, trying to help with dyslipidemia. So lipid abnormalities are extremely common in patients living with HIV. Um, The most prominent um, uh, dyslipidemia features that we see is high triglycerides and um, low HDL. Um, The high triglycerides um, actually, you know, is seen even in the pre-heart era in patients with, you know, living with HIV infection that were not yet treated with antiretroviral therapy. So the earlier studies did show that there's hypertriglyceridemia even without ART um, and low HDL. Um, uh, The the reason for hypertriglyceridemia is thought to be more um, um, inflammatory-mediated mechanisms, so interferon alpha was associated with higher hypertriglyceridemia. And then low HDL is thought to be, you know, uh, due to viral, chronic viral infection. And in fact, we, you know, we talked about this yesterday at endocrine rounds, but um, HIV itself may have effects on um, the ABCA transporter. And, you know, by um, impairing ABCA function, it could impair cholesterol efflux. And that could be a mechanism for low HDL as well as um, uh, increased risk of atherosclerosis. 
And then when um, highly active antiretroviral therapy came along, we saw that um, you know, protease inhibitors actually worsen hypertriglyceridemia. And um, it, you know, um, also, you know, even on heart um, HDL, um, the low HDL persisted and sometimes even got worse as patients develop metabolic syndrome. Um, and with all antiretroviral therapies, actually, we see an increase in LDL. Um, the common thought is that this is probably a, um, a restoration of health phenomenon as opposed to a, a pathological increase in LDL. Um, what are uh, the, the guidelines for um, management of lipids? The IDSA um, uh, guidelines suggest that fasting lipids should be obtained prior to and within one to three months after starting ART. Um, and the, you know, there's actually, in terms of guidelines, um, the IDSA does recommend basically management according to the general guidelines that we use in the general population. Um, so... In terms of the, you know, the current guidelines, we now have the 2013 AHA um, ACC um, uh, cardiovascular risk guidelines. And so for the most part, that's what, you know, um, clinicians are using now. And um, so there, you know, the decision point then becomes when do you treat with a statin? And that's because statins have been so effective in preventing cardiovascular disease um, uh, and, you know, um, reducing mortality in the general population. What about statin therapy in patients living with HIV? Do we have data there? Um, so we have data on um, surrogate endpoints. Um, so this is a study that we did at Mass General um, mm -hmm. where we saw that uh, treatment with atorvastatin at a moderate dose, 40 milligrams a day for a year, was able to significantly reduce um, plaque volume measured by CT angiography. Um, and quite concerning, actually, in our study is that we saw that in just a year, there was a 20% increase in plaque volume in the um, patients in the placebo arm. So this alerts us to, you know, the, um, uh, the potential rate of progression of coronary artery disease in um, patients living with HIV, that it may be more accelerated uh, than in the general population. Um, statins, though, um, need to be uh, very cautiously prescribed um, as there are many drug-drug interactions, especially with um, protease inhibitors. Um, and, um, and so, um, but nowadays, you know, with, you know, regimens shifting away from boosted PIs, there are, you know, less drug-drug interactions, but these are some that we need to keep in mind. Um, and also there are statins that, um, you know, are not metabolized uh, via uh, CYP3A4 that may be safer for use in patients living with HIV. Um, and uh, so, so, yeah, so for each individual patient, depending on their regimen, um, then, you know, um, the consideration of which statin to use and um, uh, the safety, you know, need to be considered very carefully. Um, I will tell you that there is currently an ongoing uh, NHLBI-funded trial, multi-center trial, that the ACTG is also doing um, that uh, is looking at effects of pitavastatin, uh, one of the statins that's not metabolized uh, through CYP3A4 in patients living with HIV, and, and, and they're going to be looking at 
events. So it's going to be a 6,500 people um, trial. So that will be very important data for us to know whether statin intervention in patients who otherwise might not meet criteria for a statin um, may be effective for prevention of cardiovascular disease um, in patients living with HIV. So in terms of the current guidelines, if we were to, um, you know, you know, Kevin was on a statin, and, you know, um, hopefully we'll be able to, you know, reconsider a statin for him in the future. Um, if we were to plug in Kevin's numbers um, into the uh, HAACC calculator, um, you know, this is what we would get. And I'm actually, you know, if we if we say Kevin's diabetes is, is currently actually quite well controlled with just diet alone, and in fact, some days he's, he probably falls in the pre-diabetes range as opposed to having full-blown type 2 diabetes. You know, if we, if, with having type 2 diabetes automatically puts you in a category of needing a statin. So, um, you know, just to see what would happen if we were to say, let's say Kevin just has pre-diabetes, um, you know, to be on the more... Uh, you know, conservative side, it's it still gives us a 10-year HCVD risk of 13%, which with the current guidelines um, does, um, you know, give us a recommendation that a moderate, you know, to high-intensity statin would be recommended. And so so that's that's something that, you know, um, in, in Kevin's case that we will be, you know, thinking about further, um, whether it will be safe to re-challenge him, and maybe with one of the statins that uh, does not have drug-drug interactions with ART. So in summary, um, it's very important to recognize the metabolic comorbidities that patients living with HIV may develop and to recognize the impact that HIV-associated adipose tissue redistribution can have on um, a patient's health as well as quality of life. Um, and emphasizing lifestyle modification is um, extremely important. And um, consideration of therapeutic strategies, um, you know, if lifestyle modification doesn't, alone doesn't work, um, you know, uh, you know uh, can be considered on an individual basis for lipohypertrophy, for, you know, in terms of use with testimorelin, for instance, um, and then individualized um, treatment for glucose abnormalities, lipid abnormalities, and CVD risk reduction if needed. Um, at this point, I'm going to turn over the mic to Dr. Andrews and Dr. Brandt, who, um, you know, have a lot of insightful things to, sh to share about Kevin's care. Thank you. Hello, everyone. I'll, I'll be brief, but um, it's hard to be brief when you're talking about Kevin. <laughs> I do want to thank Dr. Lowe for all her help over the years and um, your group in general at MGH, which is really the national resource for metabolic issues with HIV. And um, to Kevin, I want to say um, you learned early with hemophilia that you have to pay attention and that is what you've done so very, very well compared to many of our patients. Um, but you've also been able to be very honest about what was and wasn't working uh, with your meds or your health, which I always appreciated. And then also you just have an amazing attitude towards living with, with chronic health um, issues and aging. Um, from a physician perspective, there have been a lot of roller coaster moments in HIV care. And I think that when you hear a story like Kevin's, you, you really can 
see how we've come from a place where we had patients dying from AIDS to a place where we had wonderful, life-saving, highly active combination antiretroviral therapy, which we look back, and Kevin has been on since, on combination therapy for more than 30 years, and on protease, boosted protease um, for more than 20 years, more than 25 years um, now total on highly active combination therapy. We had such joy in the field related to those treatments and the ability to save life. And then we went into a real frame shift and a really dark period when it became clear that the medications we were using were causing significant harm. And as I mentioned to Dr. Lowe, uh, we really don't have all the information about uh, that at this point, why these drugs are toxic. Um, and we're left with, um, again, a new phase, really, of understanding that even our second generation of medications, including tenofovir, um, and now our newest version of tenofovir, which was supposed to be less renal toxic, tenofovir alafenamide, uh, potentially may have other complications that are unforeseen. And so from a physician perspective, we're always taught to do no harm and I think that's been one of the most challenging things related to being an HIV provider. Um, Dr. Von Ryan was your original HIV doctor, and um, I'm just recently retired and have handed off your care uh, to Dr. Marsh, who you'll be in, in good hands. Um, I do just want to say that uh, you use the word Janet bravery to describe Kevin, and um, that's very true. loud enough, too loud. Awesome, thank you. So as uh, I think Dr. Lowe mentioned, I, I came to this kind of well <laughs> into the course of things. And, you know, I love, I love kidneys. They are the most important organs in the body, no matter what any of you say. Um, but I really love glomerular disease. And so I was like, yay, I get to see a patient with proteinuria. And then I saw the history and I went, ugh, I have a stomachache now. And I still kind of have a stomachache, I have to tell you. Um, and I debated doing uh, some pathology, but I just think it um, will help you sort of understand what we saw and have been thinking ever since. So. Um, when Kevin came, uh, had about two grams of proteinuria that Dr. Andrews had identified um, and had been started on Genvoya about three months prior. And I saw him, I think about what, it was within a week or two after that finding. And then he had five and a half grams. 
And I'll tell you that any patient with HIV that has nephrotic range proteinuria, it strikes fear into your heart that you're going to see a collapsing FSGS. And that's just a disaster. Um, so I had that concern. But then you've got somebody who's on all these medications, many of which have renal implications. Um, and then things that we don't know, the renal implications. So we just didn't know. And you, and you can't know with a nephrotic um, disease what you have until you see the tissue. And then you still may not know, as you're about to find out. So I just wanted to sort of orient you a little bit. So here's our filtration barrier here. The sort of dark gray stripe is the basement membrane. POTUS epithelial cells on the outside, cute little fenestrated endothelial cells, which I'm going to show you some close-ups. But POTUS sites, when you see them in cross-section, should look like this, the infamous foot processes. So on the biopsy, what we found was that there were these patchy areas where the podocytes were, the architecture was completely obliterated. So podocyte effacement. And so that may well explain the proteinuria, or at least some of the proteinuria. I love this picture because, I mean, could you ask for a better capillary loop than this? Um, and again, you see, I mean, really, it's like, um, seriously. So... Again, these beautiful, beautiful podocytes. Uh, we don't see much of that effacement. And you also see these lovely endothelial cells. And right here, perfect. You see these cute little fenestrated, they look like just dashes along the way. And over here, eh, not so much. So already we know that there's a, a problem with the endothelial cells, which we really don't see very much when we're looking at um, nephrotic disease. So again, we've got some lovely foot process effacement some beautiful endothelial cells, and then smudgy. In addition to that, we see in the sub-endothelial space, see this kind of lucency here, and that's not normal. And e even more apparent here, the endothelial cells really should be right up against the basement membrane, and then there's this that's sort of uh, interjected between the, the uh, endothelium and the basement membrane. So there were at least two processes going on here. We have a wonderful nephropathologist here. I have to say his name, Jason Pettis. If you haven't met him, you should. Um, he uh, easily, with the, with the kind of work he does now, could easily be a world-renowned nephropathologist. He's really terrific. And um, so he calls me up, and he's like, I, I don't really know what's going on here. Um, these changes at the endothelium were what were particularly striking because it looks like an early phase of thrombotic microangiopathy, another thing that we don't like. But we didn't have an explanation for why he would have that. Um, he certainly did, ha did not have anything suggestive of a TTP. He didn't have low platelets. Um, you have to sort of think about atypical HUS, which I, part of me refuses to consider because it would just be way too complicated. Um, but also, I, I don't think that's what we're dealing with here, but... Um, I also have to kind of leave it in my mind. Um, so uh, I sent some slides off or some images off uh, to Dr. Charles Jeanette at UNC, uh, which is where I trained. And um, he is easily in the top three renal pathologists in the world. And uh, because he's at UNC where there's a lot of vasculitis and glomerular disease work, he's been involved in these studies for, you know, 50 years, I guess. And he looked at it and said, I don't know what's going on here either, <laughs> which is pretty unusual. So, you know, we, because of the podocyte effacement, 
could this be a resolving minimal change from Genvoia, from something else? It was not diffuse podocyte effacement, so that's not consistent with minimal change, but had we caught it in a phase of something. You still have to consider that you have unsampled FSGS here, and so that will remain in the back of my mind forever. Um, and, uh, but he also noted these, what would be sort of a vascular effect of these endothelial cells suggestive of an early TMA without a good explanation. So I participate in a web conference just on glomerular disease. Um, and so I presented Kevin's case, the whole story, um, and was fortunate enough the pathologist reviewing the case with the group that day was Dr. Helmut Renke at the Brigham, another world-leading nephropathologist. And all the nephrologists on the call or on the conference and Dr. Renke to a person said, I, I don't know what's happening here. So, um, so we really had a lot of, uh, you know, you've got the world's best people um, looking at this going, we're not sure what this is. So I think, in my opinion, we're left with we still don't have an answer. Um, what uh, Dr. Jeanette particularly commented on was that there was no ultra-structural ultra evidence of diabetes here. Again, an important thing to consider for this case. Um, do we have two completely different processes here? Is the podocyte injury separate from this endothelial injury, and we just fortuitously caught one because the other caused proteinuria? Um, did the Genvoia do this? Did it do one injury and not the other? There were no, uh, uh, Dr. Lowe actually called the manufacturer, and we couldn't, they had, had no reported cases of this. Um, but interestingly, he's been off of it for quite some time. And even though it took a while, over time the proteinuria really did uh, come down significantly, although never has completely resolved. So the way that I continue to approach this case, and I say continue, is that, you know, most of the time we get an answer from a biopsy. And here we didn't, but we got a lot of information. So uh, to me, this is still a looking, thinking, Jason Pettis will still call me periodically and say, I came across something, do you think it applies to this case? There are yellow stickies all over my computer monitor, which drives me crazy um, with, what about this? What about this? What about this? What about this for Kevin? And so um, I think that this is a watch and wait, which is sort of what has been uh, going on. And then we see, and if things change, probably worth another biopsy to see if something new is declaring itself. So still an unknown, very interesting, very complicated. But one of the most fun things about it was it really, uh, now we are Team Stone and actually refer to ourselves as such. And um, many members now, Graham Atkins is now part of that group and some new folks at Mass General are part of that group. So um, I think we're all really interested in making this work out. Thank you. I know we're really out of time, but Dr. Ornstein, do you want to say just a comment or two about the hemophilia aspect of this uh, particular presentation? Yeah, sure. Hemophilia were, were HIV and hepatitis C infected. And it's one of the very few 
Gould, quite honestly, is still alive. And not only is he alive, but he is flourishing. Um, and uh, there are days, I'm sure, that he doesn't feel uh, that way. But um, relative to what we often see in our human grave clinic, uh, Kevin, you're, you're a star. And, and taking care of you has been a very, um, I should say, humbling to me because I, you know, I see, I see you getting up every day, going to work, and and you know we didn't get a chance to talk about your joint disease and the chronic, you know, horrible pain that you have every day. But uh, you know, I, I think about you um, quite a bit when I'm at home and I'm, I'm painting, my shoulder hurts. <laughs> <laughs> and I well, I love the format of today's presentation. It takes a village to care for each other, and it's been wonderful. It was great to have you, Joanne, join us this morning. Thank you, and thank you for being here at Dartmouth. Dr. Lowe, thank you so much for coming and joining us today and sharing with us what you've been working on. Thank you. And thank you, Kevin.